podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What's good, boys and girls? Welcome to the Two-Footed Podcast. It is Monday, the 7th of December. We are brought to you by EPLindex.com in association with our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is, of course, a VPN provider, so do check out their services at libertyshield.com. Eight games over the weekend, some controversy, some good games, some not-so-good games, but we're going to jump straight in. Obviously, the Friday game was meant to be Aston Villa against Newcastle. That was called off because of the COVID outbreak uh, at Newcastle and the training ground having to be closed. There was players and staff members caught the virus. So we just wish them all a, a quick recovery and hope that the tune can get back to action quite soon. Uh, first game up then was Burnley playing host to Everton. Everton have had a season of two halves. They were really good for the first five games. They have not been good since um, this was another example of them not being good. Everton went with a back three again with Iwobi and Delph as wing backs. Neither are really wing backs, neither are true defensive players, though Delph has played left back in the past. But I do think Carlo got his back three wrong. Ben Godfrey on the right, no problem. Yerry Mean in the middle, no problem. But to go with Michael Keane on the left-hand side was a, was a strange move, a bad move in my view. Mason Holgate's a better defender than him, and Mason Holgate should have been starting in that spot. If you want to play Keane, you play him in the middle role. It really is a toss of the coin between Keane and Mina. But Holgate, if you're going to play a back three, is a must. Uh, Burnley went in front early. Robbie Brady, a good Irish man, scoring a goal. Nice goal from the edge of the area. Good drive uh, on his weaker foot. And it gave Burnley a, a, a good platform into the game. This was one of the better Burnley performances of the season. Um, they really limited Everton. Everton didn't really create too many good chances in this game. The one really good chance they created, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, once again stepping up to score for them uh, with a tap-in from a Richarlison cutback. This is... Calvert-Lewin having a great season. I mean, he is having a tremendous season. 11 from 11 in the Premier League, 14 from 13 in all competitions. He is one of the front runners uh, for the Golden Boot this year. And it's a complete turnaround. I mean, his career best is 13 Premier League goals. That was last season. 15 in all competitions. Again, that was last season. That 15 came in 41 games. He is 14 and 13 games. He's going to beat his his season high by Christmas, which is just remarkable. And I've seen people say, oh, the only score is tap-ins. That's absolutely fine. That's what you want from him. Because what people miss is that you're getting a lot of really good hold-up play, link-up play. He works the channels really well. He is a nightmare for centre-backs to deal with because he's so energetic. He's very powerful. He's good in the air. 
he competes for absolutely everything. And he, what he does really well is he drifts from one side to the other. He doesn't just park up on one centre-back and that's him for the day. He moves between the centre-backs, figures out where the weak points are. And then you see a lot of his runs that he makes are diagonal runs where he's in the right-hand channel, breaking across, making a back post run, making a near post run. He's just having a hell of a season. He really is. And at the moment, he is carrying Everton. He is carrying them along because they have not been good in in a bit of time now. I mean, they were top of the league after the Merseyside derby, which was week five. They're currently in ninth. They've drawn one and lost. Drawn, won one, drawn one and lost four since that Merseyside derby. Their defense has gone the wrong way. One of the worst defenses in the league now. And um, truth be told, Carlo needs to sort things out. He needs to get things back on track. Their only win since that Marissa Derby was that Fulham game that they were lucky to win. If Cavaliero's foot doesn't go from underneath him, that's a three-all draw because he scores that penalty. Uh, you would hope that Carlo will turn things around. There are some doubts. I've already seen some Everton fans suggest that maybe he's not the right man. Uh, when you consider he's coming up on a year in the job, he has struggled to last more than a year and a half in his last two jobs. And Carlo's a funny one because he's obviously one of the all-time great managers. I mean, there can be no doubting that, that he is among the very best who've ever done it. You look at his honours, he won a Serie A title with Milan and two Champions Leagues. He won a double with Chelsea, won a French title with um, Paris Saint-Germain, won a Bundesliga, won a Champions League with Real Madrid. But I don't know that there's ever been a manager who's won as much as him that's been sacked as often as him. He was sacked by Parma. He was sacked by Juventus. He left Milan of his own accord. He was sacked by Chelsea. Left PSG of his own accord, but was sacked by Real Madrid. Was sacked by Bayern and was sacked by Napoli. It's a lot of times being dismissed from a job you're clearly very, very good at. People will say, oh, Mourinho's been sacked a bunch, but he hasn't really. Chelsea sacked him twice, but that's Roman. And I would say the same thing goes for Carlo. Carlo won a double and got sacked 12 months later. I mean, there's just no rhyme or reason to that. Roman just sacks on a, people on a whim. Um, but to win three Champions Leagues and league titles in four different countries and have been sacked as many times as Carlo has been sacked. It's just very, very strange. Now I had doubts over him going to Everton at the time because he's not the type who's ever shown an ability to rebuild a team. Carlo's the type of guy that when you're one or two pieces short, when you're a top four team or you're a Champions League contender, you bring Carlo in, you add one or two pieces, and he makes the right little tweaks to get you over the line, to win you that league title, to win you that Champions League. He's not really the type that you bring in when you're ninth or 10th 
and you give him the remit to rebuild. He's never done that in his career. So it is a strange fit. It's always been a bit of a strange fit, but I can understand why Everton went for it. He's a massive name. He's one of the all-time greats. It was a huge coup for Everton to get him, even coming off the dismissal at Napoli. Managers, get again, get sacked by Bayern, even when they're successful. Um, Niko, Niko uh, Kovic won a league title, was sacked. Um, that's just, it's the pressure at those clubs. Real Madrid is the same. Chelsea's the same. Like, managers do get sacked a lot, but not, not to the level of him. Um, it, it's, it's going to be interesting to follow, Chelsea, follow Everton over the next six, seven weeks and just see how they react to this little downturn in form. Now, no Luca Dina is massive for them. And without him, and now Fabian Delph is injured, they're going to have to rely on Nkonku, the, the young French left back they brought in in the summer, who's very talented by all accounts, very inexperienced, very raw. Their squad is a little bit light. They don't really have anyone at right back at the moment. We're Coleman out. John Joe Kenny not in favour. Um, it will be does a decent job, but defensively he struggles. He's good going forward. Um, they rely heavily on James Rodriguez, like really heavily. Nick Pope actually pulled off one world-class save from James Rodriguez in this game on Saturday. And I, like I said, I think Burnley were were good value for their point. I think it's an important point for them. Uh, it means that if they win their game in hand, they will jump themselves out of the bottom three. Now, that game in hand is against United, so it will not be easy. But Burnley are starting to grind out some results. And I, I think of, of the bottom four, Fulham, West Brom, Sheffield United and themselves, they're the one you'd have to fancy to stay up. Nick Pope is a top-end goalkeeper. James Tarkovsky is a very good centre-back. They've got decent options in midfield. Dwight McNeil's a very, very good young player. And with Chris Wood up front, they'll always be dangerous. And they have the best manager of those four teams. Um, you'd have to fancy Burnley to be the one that stays up. But they just need to keep grinding out these kind of results. Uh, they've got a tough enough little run coming now. They've got Arsenal. Then they've got Aston Villa. Then Wolves. And then Leeds. That's four tough games to lead them through towards the end of the year. Sheffield United is their last game of this calendar year, and that that could well be a Sheffield United team that we're writing off at that point. I'm I'm, I'm close to that at the moment, uh, but big big point for for Burnley. Disappointing, I think, for Everton. They will have probably targeted that as one that they expected to win. Uh, up next then was Manchester City with a very very comfortable two 0 win over Fulham. Uh, they got their goals early. Raheem Sterling. And then a Kevin De Bruyne penalty after Raheem Sterling had been fouled. I would take issue with the awarding of said penalty. I think it's one of the softest penalties I've seen all season. And when you consider Raheem Sterling is 25 years of age and has now won more penalties than any other player in the history of the Premier League, it does really point to him going down a little bit easy and maybe not getting... Uh, criticised as much as, as some other players who maybe have different passports. Uh, Fulham didn't put up a huge fight in this game. Um, one shot on target. Didn't really trouble City. City's most dangerous moment came 
when Ederson uh, got himself all confused and tried to tackle John Stones and nearly caused Stones to score an own goal. But it was very, very comfortable comfortable from City. I think City might be a little bit disappointed, in truth, to be 2-0 up after 26 minutes against a team that look a good bet for relegation and only end 2-0. It's not what we're used to from City. We're used to City really putting the hammer down there and banging in 3-4-5. But for whatever reason, they seem to take their foot off the gas. Whether it was... Uh, Pep, you know, paying homage to Corporal Parker and the other do the dugout, and you know, after his sacrifices for his country in the Great War, uh, not wanting to humiliate him too much, I don't know, but it's a comfortable win for City, and it's three points, and that's all they needed uh, for Fulham. Look, this was never a game that they had targeted to take anything from. Not many teams go to the Etihad and expect to take anything at all. Fulham will be looking at other games thinking there's where we get our points. Next weekend is not one of them. Liverpool, they won't expect points from that. But the following weekend, Brighton, that's one they'll target. Newcastle away, they'll be looking for a point. Southampton at home, again, that's something they'll they'll think they can get a point or two or, or three from. Spurs away won't be one, but Fulham away will. So, sorry, Fulham away. Burnley away. Burnley away. Um... They will have to target their games and they'll they'll have to deliver in those games because the Premier League is difficult and there's four teams starting to fall away a little bit. If Brighton were to beat Southampton tonight, you would be looking at a six-point gap between 16th and 17th. And Burnley do have that game in hand, but as I keep saying, it's against United. It is a very tough game. That six-point gap could well be the difference. You know, that that could be the difference there where there's just one team that stays up from those bottom four. And even if a club like Sheffield United could turn things around, just the fact that it's one safety spot, it could be their undoing. Because you'd, you'd fancy Burnley to grind it out over any of them. Um, for City, it's just, you know, they're back in, back on track. Back to winning ways. They got a good result, obviously, last weekend, walloping Burnley. They'll have a bigger test next weekend away to Manchester United. But they go into it in in, in a little bit of decent league form. Two wins uh, on the bounce. It's a, a needed turnaround. Needed turnaround from City. They're up to sixth with that game in hand. Um, they are one point behind United, which they won't be too happy about, considering the, the gulf between the two teams. But, um, yeah, all things considered, comfortable win. Uh, following on from that, then, we did have Manchester United with a 3-1 win over West Ham. Once again, they went behind in the first half. Thomas Suchek with the goal. Um, but from there, they, they did turn around. Oli made some substitutions at halftime, uh, threw on Bruno Fernandes, threw on Marcus Rashford. And those two, once again saved his skin. Um, I think a lot of people are starting to to reach the end of their patience level with Oli. Even with the wins, it is purely down to the talent that continues to save them. And they got really lucky in this game. They got really, really lucky in this game. Paul Pogba scores a great goal. Um, I think Greenwood's finish was was exceptional. But there is controversy over, obviously, one of the goals where Dean Henderson 
has a long punt downfield um, from the right back channel that very clearly goes out of play, isn't called out of play, and United continue on and score. United can only play to the whistle, so they're absolutely within the rights to do it, but it is very poor officiating. You would hope that we will see increased technology that will stop things like this happening. David Moyes was furious after the game, and rightly so. But look, it's in part West Ham's own fault. They were very, very good first half, less so second half. They really should have had that game wrapped up first half. They should have been 2 or 3-0 up um, with the chances they had. They were very, very comfortable. United, like last weekend, just didn't turn up in the first half. Bruno and Rashford come on, and those two are the two that make the difference. That's just as simple as that. United up to fifth in the league. I don't know that I've ever seen a team who've been as bad in the Premier League be fifth after 10 games, because they have been dreadful. One good game against Everton, 20 minutes against Newcastle, and two decent halves last weekend and this weekend. And that's it. They have been trash for the rest of it. But they continue to win games because they have that attack. Defensively, they've been so poor. 17 goals conceded. Only 19 scored. But those 19 goals are coming from a couple of avenues. Bruno is one. Rashford's another. They're getting bits and pieces from from the likes of Greenwood, who you'd expect as time goes on this season will start to pick up more form. He is an incredible natural finisher. Like He reminds me of Robbie Fowler with his ability to put the ball right in the corners. Stylistically, he's a bit more Daniel Sturridge. Um, that zero backlift generates great power, both footed like Fowler. He's, he's a tremendous young player, and they are very, very lucky to have him um, come through their academy just after Rashford, similar to how Liverpool are, are quite excited by Curtis Jones after Trent Alexander-Arnold. United have have the double uh, double whammy with, with Greenwood after Rashford. It's a good win for United. It, it They didn't perform particularly well that first half, but to come back and get the win against the team who had been in good form, that's all you can really ask for, is to get that win. Uh, and then the last game of Saturday was Chelsea against Leeds United. There's been some differing takes on this game. I thought Leeds had opportunities to win this game. However, I do think, for the most part, Lampard got the better of Bielsa. Not to the extent that someone like Michael Cayley has said where he completely outcoached him from start to finish. I don't believe that to be true, but I do think he outcoached him over the 90 minutes. Um, Patrick Bamford put Leeds in front early before Oli Giroud, rewarded with a start after his uh, great performance in midweek, got Chelsea on level terms. Leeds' defensive issues, though, they're just so poor defensively. They really, really are. I mean, Leeds had 55% possession in this game, but yet they allowed 23 shots on goal, 11 on target. Kurt Zuma put Chelsea ahead with um, a, a pretty emphatic header uh, 15 minutes into the second half. And then Christian Pulisic wrapped it up with a tap-in from a Timo Werner cross. Werner missed a number of sitters in this game, including one that is surely going to go down as miss of the year, where he stopped a ball from... Uh, a header that was definitely going into the net. Uh, he he stops it and then hooks it onto the crossbar. 
Werner's looking very much like an Alvaro Morata at the moment. That's not him. That's not what he does. It's not who he normally is, but it, it might be a little bit concerning for Chelsea. Um, I didn't think Chelsea's initial setup worked that well for them, where they went with Havertz and Mount in midfield with Kante. I thought it just left them struggling to get a real foothold in the game, and they were relying heavily on counterattacks. Maybe that was the plan. I don't know. But um, I thought once they made their changes and Kovacic came on and Pulisic came on, I thought they looked a lot better, more balanced. Um, I will say Leeds should have had a penalty in this game. Uh, Ian Poveda was fouled by Ben Chilwell, but stayed on his feet and therefore was not given uh, the penalty. It was pretty much the exact same thing that Andy Robertson was penalised for last weekend. If Poveda had thrown himself to the ground uh, the way Danny Welbeck did, maybe he would have gotten the penalty, but he should have been given it anyway. And if we're going to complain regularly about players throwing themselves to the ground, it is because they don't get the rewards if they stay on their feet. Ian Pavetta was punished for being too honest in this game. He was clearly fouled by Ben Chilwell, and he stayed on his feet, and he got no reward. Could that have changed the game? Absolutely it could have. It could have been the difference between Chelsea getting the win and Leeds getting the win, because it came at a, an important time in the game. Um, for Leeds again this is a game they, they they will have been up for this because obviously there's there's history with Lampard from when he was at Derby County but I don't think Leeds overall will have planned for this game as one that they intended to or that they thought they would win Bielsa obviously sends his team out to win in every game and doesn't believe that any team is better than his own but I do think if you're being honest, you look at that Chelsea squad and say, okay, like, okay, Frank has spent the better part of 300 million there, was also given a nice 60 million welcome present when he arrived and Christian Pulisic was sitting there wrapped in a bow. Um, and as much as Leeds have spent, they're not spending that type of money. They're also not buying that caliber of player. Leeds buy good players and hope to make them very good. Chelsea buy very good players and hope to make them great. Or they just buy great players like Kai Havertz, like Timo. So, you know, this was two teams from different groups. Chelsea got an expected win. It's a good win. It keeps them, it puts them into third in the league. Um, their attack is looking good. Defensively, they've been better than I expected this season. I don't think they've been tested yet. I do, do think they've had an easy run of games, all things considered. And against the top teams they've played, Spurs and United, they've just gone and parked the bus. Um, been very, very dull encounters in, in both games. Um, admittedly, Mourinho parked the bus as well. So, you know, that was just a horrendous game of football. But I think Chelsea's got much bigger tests coming up. Um, they go to Everton next, then they've got Wolves, then West Ham, away to Arsenal, Villa, Man City. That is a tough, tough run of games. The next six games are going to tell us a lot more than the previous 11 have. That is all six teams with real top half ambitions. Um, West Ham, obviously, I didn't think they would have top half ambitions, but they've been in great form. Arsenal will need to turn things around very, very soon. We'll get to them. But, um, you know, Wolves, won't, Wolves will be tough. Everton will be tough. They're both away as well. 
and then obviously Villa and City uh, to end the year and and start the new one, and then Leicester. So it's it's a really tough next seven games in truth. Uh, Morecambe in the FA Cup should be a nice, easy run out for them. Uh, for Leeds, 14th is probably a little lower than they like they'll have liked to be. 20 goals conceded is definitely not what they would have wanted, but it is what it is. Um, they've got a bit of an easier run than than Chelsea, but it's still got some tough games there. They've got West Ham, then they've got Newcastle. Both games at home, both games they will look to win. United away will be difficult. Burnley at home is a game they'll expect to win. West Brom away, again, I think they'll expect to win that. And then Spurs away, that is a very tough game followed by Southampton. So their next seven is tough, not close to the level of, of the Chelsea seven, but there's three or four games there they'll expect to win. If they can pick up a couple of draws in those tougher games, it'll put them in really good position uh, for the second half of the season. And I don't think they're going to have any problems purely because I think the bottom four are going to be the bottom four. Uh, but they'll still want to finish it in and around that mid-table mark, having spent so much in the summer and remember as well, Bielsa signs one-year contracts. So he, for the players, they will want to put on as good a show as possible to convince him to stay. And for him, he'll want to do as well as possible to convince himself that he can take this team on. Bielsa will walk out the day he thinks this team stagnates, the day he, think he thinks he can't take them any further. That's when he will leave. So as long as they continue to progress, I think he's going to be very happy to stay there. He seems to love life at Leeds. He really does. And it's great to see because he's obviously a tremendous manager, but he's always really struggled to find a place where he's comfortable, and he seems to have that at Leeds. Um, into Sunday then, uh, again, there was four games, the first of which West Bromwich Albion against Crystal Palace. Um, for 30 minutes, this was a very competitive game, a game where you thought it could go either way. Um, Palace went one up, an own goal by Darnell Furlong. West Brom battled back and, and did look the better team, it must be said. Get their goal through Conor Gallagher, another good goal for him. A, a better goal than the last one, uh, which came off his shin. But this was a this was a good strike from the edge of the area, and then it all went it all went to hell for them. Um, Mateus Pereira wins a free kick, fouled by Patrick Van Aanholt, and for some unknown reason, kicks out at Van Aanholt. Now he doesn't kick out violently, but he does kick out. There's no question he kicks out, and he makes contact. Van Aanholt, to his credit, doesn't was make it known that he's not too happy about it gets reviewed by VAR the referee goes over, checks the screen and makes the decision to send Pereira off. I think it's the right decision even if it's not the most violent of, of outbursts but it's a red card for stupidity more than anything and I like that's what he should be sent off for, not violent conduct or anything like that stupidity. When the referee writes up his match report that's what he should write it down as. Mateus Pereira red card 34 minutes Stupidity. Uh, and then West Brom fall apart. They absolutely capitulate in just in the manner of a team that doesn't have any belief in themselves, really. 
Palace go on to score four goals in the second half. And look, when you go down to 10 men, it is tough in the Premier League. Of course it is. But when you concede two goals to Christian Benteke, seriously, when you concede two goals to Christian Benteke, Benteke, you know you're in big trouble. You know that the championship is calling. Because that man is dreadful. He scored two goals all of last season. One the previous year and three the previous season. He scored six goals in three seasons. You gave him one third of that in half a game. Not even half a game. An abomination is the only way to describe West Brom's defensive side in the second half. And I said this during the summer. If they don't solve that defensive issue, they are going to go straight back down. They have a good attack. Their midfield is absolutely fine. Their defense is atrocious. That is what's going to lead to them plummeting back down into the championship. They dropped a second from bottom, 19th place. They've got Newcastle next, then Man City away, then then Villa, then Liverpool, then Leeds, then Arsenal. And then West Ham. That brings up to the 12th of January. That is a tough run because Newcastle, that's an away game. West Ham is an away game. Fair enough, they've got West Brom. Or they've got... Fair enough, they've got Aston Villa and Leeds and Arsenal at home. But they're three good teams. Three teams that will expect to beat you. They've got to go to the Etihad and go to Anfield. That's a really tough run of games. Really, really tough. And it's hard to see how they turn this around. It really is hard to see how they get out of the muck without going in January and buying at least two defenders. And maybe a goalkeeper, because he's not very good either. Um, For Palace, I mean, Zaha gets two goals on his return. Benteke gets those goals. Maybe that gives him some confidence. Maybe he can turn things around for himself, bounces them up to 11th place. They'll be happy with that. You know, they're only they're only a point off 7th. Um, so, yeah, Palace will be very happy with how their season has gone so far. They do have a tough enough run coming up, though. They've got Spurs, then they've got West Ham, then they've got Liverpool, then they've got Villa, then they've got Leicester. Uh, then they get Sheffield United, which, of course, they'll win because Sheffield United don't beat anybody. And then they get Arsenal as their first kind of real game of of next year. Um, I'm not counting New Year's games or January 2nd games as next year. That's, that's part of this year, really, isn't it? It is part of this year. Um, but, yeah, um, it's a tough run. It really is a tough run. But Palace have done a lot of the work to keep themselves in the Premier League for next season, probably half the points they'll need, given how bad some of the teams are. Um, they'll be very, very happy with, with where they sit right now. And Hodgie's doing a, a good job, you know, five wins, one draw, five defeats, but a positive goal difference, which is unusual for Crystal Palace. Um, yeah, once Zaha plays, they're a different team. They really are. Zaha and Easy look very, very good together. They've got real chemistry, and they seem to enjoy playing together as well. So for the Hodge, he just needs to make sure he keeps the two of them boys on the same pitch. Um, 
And for, for West Brom, you need to go and buy all new defenders. All of them. Of the three who started, the three centre... Now, playing Matty Phillips as a, as a wing-back was a suicidal move. Let's be clear on that. But Ajayi, Ivanovic and Bartley, you wouldn't have any of them anywhere close to your team. You really wouldn't have any of them close to your team. Um, next game up was... Sheffield United against Leicester City. Um, it, you have to feel a little bit bad for Sheffield United. It was one of their better performances of the season. Ayosi Perez put Sheffield United, or put Leicester 1 0 up. Sheffield bounced back two minutes later with an Ollie McBurney header and from there, you thought they might get something. They offered very little. They had, they didn't have another shot on target. They didn't really create anything. Didn't really try. They just kind of bedded in and, and tried to grind out that one point. And they would have done if their defense wasn't an absolute calamity. But Jamie Vardy races through in the 90th minute and slots it by uh, at the hapless Aaron Ramsdale to seal the win for Leicester. And you just look at this Sheffield United team. <clears throat> one point from 11. 11 games. One point from 33 points. It's the worst start in Premier League history. Uh, if they don't pick up... I think if they don't pick up a minimum of six points from the next two games, I think they're gone. And they've got Southampton and Man United. Now, if if... The likes of Burnley and Fulham and West Brom continue to be so bad and they don't pick up points, then it, it eases the burden a little bit. And if they can, you know, stay within five points of the teams above them, it would give them somewhat of a chance. But you really feel like they have to start winning games. 11 games in and to only have one point and be very, very fortunate to have that one point. How do you go from ninth in the table to the worst start anybody has ever seen? It really is bizarre. And, you know, if we look back, if we look back to last season, they were going great guns and then football shut down. And then it it kind of turned on them. The first game back, obviously, was that Villa game where they scored and it wasn't given because Hawkeye uh, messed up. But then they they lose to Newcastle, lose to United, 3-0 in both games. Arsenal dumped them out of the cup. But then they beat Spurs, get a draw with Burnley and beat Wolves and beat Chelsea. But then Leicester beat them, Everton beat them, Southampton beat them to end the season. And, you know, so from the last 14 games, they haven't won a game. You've got to go back 15 games to give them a win. But that 15 game, that was Chelsea. They were beating Chelsea 3-0 in July. If Chelsea played Sheffield United tomorrow, you'd be amazed if Sheffield United could keep it to three goals. If Chelsea didn't just wipe the floor with them. Um, massively disappointing. Very, very close to the point where you just write them off. Very, very close. For Leicester, it's a good win. It's an important win because they'd obviously lost last weekend to Fulham, which was massively disappointing. 
They've had two bad results in the Europa League in a row, and obviously they got beaten by Liverpool quite comfortably. Uh, they did look like they may have been a little bit broken again, but this gets them back on track. Next up, they've got Brighton, then Everton, Spurs, United, Crystal Palace, and Newcastle, and that takes them through to the new year. And that is a tough enough run of games. Uh, Brendan will have to rotate the squad and, and keep people fresh. Obviously, very reliant on Vardy. And just on Vardy, you'll have seen the celebration. He slides in, he tackles the corner flag, and he snaps it in half. That corner flag was flying the pride flag, and some people suggested that maybe uh, it was the, the, the pride flag that he was attacking. Let's clear this up. Jamie Vardy is a lifelong Sheffield Wednesday fan. He was attacking Sheffield United, not the pride flag. Jamie Vardy has worn the rainbow boots a number of different years in support of pride, of LGBT, LGBT rights. Jamie Vardy has done his share to, to support that. Let's not disparage this man. He, there's, there's things he's done, things he's said that you can definitely pick holes in. This is not something that he's he's done. This is merely a Sheffield Wednesday fan scoring a goal against a team that he grew up hating and celebrating it in a release of emotion. That's what that's what that is. That's all it needs to be. Um the North London Derby was next. Table top topping Spurs get a very comfortable 2 0 win. Um Jose doing Jose things. 30% possession. Allowing Arsenal to have the ball and just picking them open whenever he really fancied it. Uh, Youngman's son puts Spurs up 1-0 after 13 minutes. Uh, picks up a pass from Harry Kane. Carries it about 20 yards. No Arsenal player attempts to get close to him and make a tackle. And from about 22, 23 yards, Eddie bends it in the top corner. Um, it's shambolic defending from Arsenal. Arsenal went to a 4-4-2, made absolutely no difference. Um, Spurs just allowed them to have the ball. Harry Kane doubled the advantage, another counter-attack. Really impressive counter-attacking move, it must be said. Um, Heusberg finds... Lo Celso, Lo Celso drives on, passes it to Youngman's son. Kane overlaps him, son slips him in, and he just absolutely blasts it into the top of the net. Um, Bernard Leno had absolutely no chance with either goal and can't take any blame. He's one of the few Arsenal players that can leave that game with his head held high. Uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang cannot. He was absolutely dreadful. Dreadful, dreadful display. Um, and in truth, Arsenal were dreadful. They were just shocking for the majority of the game. Um, they lose Thomas Partey through injury again. Clearly wasn't fit. Didn't look fit in the first half. Uh, pulled up lame. Was walking off the pitch to be changed um, when Spurs broke for the second goal. Tried to turn around and chase Kane. Gave up after about three steps. Um, they might be without him for a while. They probably shouldn't have rushed him back. But in truth, Spurs were very, very comfortable. Loads of nonsense in the post-match from Jamie Redknapp, as per usual. 
uh, asking how you'd want to play in that Spurs team. You'd want to play in that team because they win and because they score goals. If you're Youngman's son or Harry Kane, you're delighted in that team. Uh, Redknapp said Arsenal control the game. The man has no idea what he's talking about. Absolutely none. Spurs dominated that game. They dominated that game with 30% possession because they allowed Arsenal to have the ball where they wanted them to have the ball. And when they felt like it, they just took it off them. There is a little bit of controversy out of this one, though. And it again revolves around Harry Kane. Once again, he has done the thing where he backs into somebody jumping, causes them to to fall over him, and flops on the ground and rolls around like a fish trying to claim a free kick. Um, Gabriel has eyes only for the ball on the edge of the Spurs area. Jumps for it. Kane backs into him. And it's somehow not a free kick to Arsenal. I don't know why he continues to get away with this, but referees need to stamp this out really, really quickly. Watch watch what he does. Three times already this season he's done this. Watch him in the build-up to it. No look at the ball. Eyes only for the man. Backs into them. He is going to hurt somebody. And he's going to hurt somebody really, really badly. And maybe then somebody's going to go, oh, maybe we shouldn't let him do that. But until then, he gets called crafty, smart, because he's English and he's white. No other reason. If he was a foreign player or he was black, he wouldn't get the same benefit of the doubt. But let's call it what it is. It's cheating. And it's disgusting. And it's dangerous. And he's going to break someone's neck. Someone is going to come down wrong and break their neck. And it's going to be Harry Kane's fault. And it's not just going to be his fault. It's going to be the referee's fault because the referees have allowed him to do this. And the next time he does it, the referee needs to take take action against him and needs to send him to the line. He needs, or the alternative is a teammate of the person who Harry Kane has endangered needs to go right through him, needs to just carve him in half with a tackle and let him know why they've done it. Because otherwise he's just going to keep doing it. It's disgusting, it's dangerous, it's cheating, and it needs to be stamped out really, really quickly because he's going to hurt somebody. And it's such a shame because he's having an incredible season. But it just winds me up that he's allowed away with it and gets praised for it. Well, let's see how much praise he gets when someone gets badly hurt. Let's see then what the excuse is for him because there will be an excuse. He's the golden boy, so nothing bad will be said about him. But let's see what happens when he hurts somebody badly. Or let's see what the reaction is when someone carves him in half. If he does it against Liverpool, Fabinho or Jordan Henderson will cut him in half. And then let's see what gets said. Of course, if it's Fabinho, he won't be allowed away with it. Henderson might get away with it because he's English, but um, Fabinho won't. So let's hope it's Fabinho. Let's hope he just cuts him in half if Kane tries that in that game. It's a disgusting, disgusting thing to do. Uh, last up then, Liverpool 4, Wolves nil. The Reds went into this game second place on goal difference. Um, expecting a tough game. Wolves had had one of the best defensive records in the league. 
uh, as I've said on this podcast a bunch of times, very, very boring team to watch, though did uh, did discover a little bit of attacking play last weekend. Obviously, no Raul Jimenez. Uh, he's out with a fractured skull. And by all accounts, he's he's home. He's on the mend. So it's just time. Just time. That's all he needs. Uh, so, you know, hopefully he recovers quickly. Um, Liverpool dominated this game. I mean, there's not much to say that I haven't already said about this game on other podcasts. Liverpool dominated the game. Um, didn't really get out of second gear. Didn't really need to. A couple of great moments. Some wonderful individual talent. And lots and lots of draws from Connor Cody. Connor Cody is the man of the match from all angles here. What a guy. First goal for Liverpool. Jordan Henderson hits a long, hopeful ball that's under hit. Cody just needs to step forward and head it. Has a simple opportunity to chest it down if he chooses to do that. Does something completely different. The ball slaps off his chest and drops behind him. And um, Mo Salah runs onto it and scores. It's uh, it's a goal Liverpool deserve. In fairness, Liverpool have been on top and have been controlling the game. But um, it's just it's shambolic defending from Cody. Um, then we go down the other end of the field and uh, Wolves have a corner. Ball comes in, lands to Cody. Next thing, he throws himself on the ground and it looks like it looks like Sadio Mane might have made a little bit of contact with him. But the Liverpool players know he hasn't. The Liverpool players immediately surround the referee and then and then Cody, who won't look at them. He just walks away, won't look at them. And then you see the replay. And it's one of the most disgraceful dives you will ever see. It is flagrant cheating from Connor Cody. The referee, thankfully, having given the penalty, is told to look at it again by the VAR. Looks at it, realizes it's a flagrant dive. Now, why he doesn't book Connor Cody, I have no idea. I really don't understand why he doesn't book Connor Cody. It is disgusting cheating. And it should be called out as such. It wasn't once called cheating by BT um, or Prime. Sorry, Amazon Prime. It wasn't called cheating by them or any other provider who had the game, Premier Sports, etc., etc. It was cheating. Plain and simple cheating. And it was it was the second of Connor Cody's big inputs into the game, but it wasn't his last. No, no, no. No, it wasn't his last at all. Uh, Liverpool went 2-0 up in the second half. Uh, Jordan Henderson uh, with a, a simple enough through ball to, uh, to Ginny Wijnaldum. Um, could have played it to Manny either, had, had both options. Goes to, to Wijnaldum. Uh, Connor Cody decides to stand him up and then backpedal at an alarming rate, allows Wijnaldum to carry the ball 10, 15 yards and then ping it in the top corner. Um, why he decided not to make a tackle, only Connor Cody will know, but it is more dreadful defending. Uh, more comedy defending from Wolves, though Cody not involved for the third goal. It, it appears Daniel Pedence, five foot five of him, was assigned to man mark Joel Matip, who's six foot five at corners, loses him instantaneously, and Matip gets on the end of a Mo Salah cross to thump a header home. Uh, it's it's no more than Liverpool deserve. Liverpool are very very dominant at this point, and then the fourth goal comes. Uh, 
Curtis Jones finds Trent Alexander-Arnold, who's returned from injury, and come on as substitute. Wide on the right, he whips across a low ball. Again, Connor Cody with some comedy defending, about 15 yards out of position, laboring back into play, uh, gets nowhere close to the ball. And uh, Nelson Semedo gets himself caught in a little bit of a mess with Sadio Mane and puts the ball into his own net to uh, conclude the scoring in this game and give Liverpool a very comfortable 4-0 win. And as I said, they never really got out of second gear because they didn't really need to. Uh, Wolves were terrible on the night. And um, Wolves have a real problem. They've got a real problem with scoring goals. And with Jimenez out, it's very hard to look at that team and see where the goals will come from. They had two decent opportunities in this game, forced two good saves from Cueving Kelleher. The first, Daniel Pedence with a little lofted shot to the back post uh, that Kelleher did well to uh, position himself and, and tip around the post. And the second one was laid on when Ray Nuri had come on and got himself in at the back post, drove a low shot that Kelleher managed to save with his legs. Uh, Liverpool can be very, very comfortable, very, very confident and very, very happy with where they sit right now. They'd obviously like to have that Villa game back, but joint top of the league, you know, qualified in the Champions League with all the injuries they have, they're going to be very, very happy with things right now. Naby Keita back from injury, Trent Alexander-Arnold back from injury, Alison Becker on his way back, Oxley chamberlain on his way back, Shakiri on his way back. With the exception of Gomez and Fabinho, they should have everybody back by Christmas time, which is massive. It really, really is massive because, did I say Gomez and Fabinho? I meant Gomez and Van Dijk. Fabinho has stepped in and been tremendous. I'm not sure there's a better centre-back in the league right now. If it is, his name might be Joel Matip. Those two together have been great. A um, little bit of a different midfield setup where Jordan Henderson played a lot of the game on the right-hand side with, with Wijnaldum in that deeper role, and it seemed to work for both of them. All three of Liverpool midfielders had good games. Uh, the front three all had good games. It was nice to see uh, Roberto Firmino back towards his best. I thought Nuno got things very, very wrong. I think Nuno's quite lucky as well that Liverpool didn't exploit the left-hand side of that defence even more. Cody can't play in a two. I mean, you look at that back four. Semedo's good going forward, but he doesn't really have a whole lot of interest in defending. Willie Bowley's the type of fellow who looks like a good centre-back. If you don't really know what you're looking at, you might he might pass as a good centre-back, but he's not a good centre-back. I can't defend. And Connor Cody can't defend either. So, I look at that team last night from Wolves, and if they could add two decent centre-backs, they'd be alright. They'd be a good team. They might even be a top-four calibre team. They're not going to get top four Willie Bowley and Connor Cody. Really aren't going to get anywhere close to top four with those two. They're just not good enough. They're fine as squad players. You get away with Cody in a, in a three, but not in a four. Just he got exposed last night, showed up for what he is, a very, very average defender, um, below average pace, below average positioning. He's just, he wouldn't be for me. And, and Bowley is... Like I say, he looks like a good defender, but he isn't. Um, and that was it. That was our eight games for the weekend. We get Brighton against Southampton tonight. Uh, one last thing. Liverpool's next run of games uh, is a little bit favourable. They've got Fulham, then Spurs, and that is a very, very tough game. But then they've got Palace, West Brom, Newcastle, 
Southampton away will be tough, and then Burnley. So Liverpool do have a, a favourable run of games uh, where they'll expect to pick up a lot of points. For Wolves, it doesn't get doesn't get very easy. They've got Villa next, then they've got Chelsea. Both those games at home, so they'll they'll hope to win both, but they are tough games. Then Burnley away, then Spurs, then United, then Brighton away, and then Everton. So it is a tough run of games, punctuated with Crystal Palace in the cup. Uh, Liverpool, of course, um, drew Aston Villa in the FA Cup, but Liverpool don't take the FA Cup seriously. So it'll most likely be the under-18s or the under-23s that play in that one with the senior players rested as Jurgen Klopp uh, tries to further wind up Chris Wilder with more disrespect to the English game and selfishness. Uh, But Chris Wilder should be more concerned with one point from 33. And that is where we will leave you today, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Uh, Brighton said Hampton tonight should be a good game. Two decent teams play good football. Southampton obviously um, eighth in the table, but can jump into fifth with a win tonight. Brighton currently sitting 16th. They can overtake Arsenal and move into 15th if they were to pick up a 3-0 win. Even a 2-0 win might do it because they've scored more goals. Arsenal have only scored 10 goals this season. Just think about that. They've got Aubameyang, Lacazette, Nicolas Pepe, Reese Nelson, Willian, Eddie and Katia. Have only scored ten goals this season? What a shambles! Uh, I've already seen one or two high-profile Arsenal fans uh, who may or may not be part of a uh, YouTube Arsenal collective. Suggest that Arteta out is the way to go. Producer Guy Drinkle sent me a picture yesterday of uh, Arteta out t-shirts that are being produced. Uh, it seems a little bit rash, but this is what those people do. They uh, they throw tantrums and make t-shirts. They'll get banners out if they have to. Not sure where they'll have the banners because obviously minimal fans in stadiums, but you know, fans back in stadiums was really good to see. Really, really good to see. And if I can just say, if you're at the game and you're not wearing a mask, you're a dumbass, and you're the reason that it's not going to come back quicker, wear your mask, and there will be allowed 4,000, 6,000, and so on and so forth. If you don't wear your mask, you're just a jackass. That's it. That's the show. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Guy Drinkle. Thank you to Foxhound. See you tomorrow. Take care. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.